0: I think you've missed a critical part of the story, and this is certainly something that I found fascinating. The insight with regards to the multiple origins of life that Freeman Dyson often is fundamentally that life comes out of funk. It comes out of, you know, grotty, grimy environments that are allowed to kind of heat up and cool and do all these kind of things, but it's fundamentally... What is his term garbage bag or trash bag? Yeah, his, Can, his
1: term from the book is Dirty trash, a trash bag full of dirty water and gunk, um, in, in his metaphor in The
0: Double Origins of Life. And I think certainly listening to just the six minutes of audio that you did record with him, he was returning to the theme with regards to the Evo grid that really what you were doing in the EVO Grid was kind of pre-even the, the dirty, grotty trash bag. This was something where you were actually trying to work out ways of kind of cobbling the funk together in order to make a, something that could yield simulated life. I mean, it, was that your understanding as well, talking to Freeman?
1: Yes, and in fact, it mainly came across, we showed him the Evil Grid movie, which is very fanciful, and perhaps my mistake is that it started in, and I didn't turn up the volume He didn't hear, you know, he may be somewhat hard of hearing. Um, You know, I certainly will be if I'm 85, if I'm still around. But he may not have have understood that the the movie we were showing was very fanciful and very simplified. And the movie, of course, the evil grid, the movie, the the first version, which is public now, um, shows really simple sort of particles moving around, and then these trash bags emerging that suddenly have more complex behavior, and it's it's. extremely cartoony. And so his critique of the movie was, "Oh, it's just it's not real." I mean, it's not and, and of course I said, "Of course it's not real. It's a it's a it's a notional cartoony representation of of this thing." Uh, I did then show him the Asteroid Eater's version of The Evil Grid movie, which is basically the the Dyson's Trees concept. And for
0: those listeners who don't know about Dyson's
1: Trees, it's something Freeman wrote a couple of decades ago about that the habitable surfaces in the solar system may be in the Oort clouds and the asteroid belts and the cometary halos. And if you could evolve or engineer things that could live on their surfaces and eat up that material, you'd end up basically vivifying the solar system. You'd end up creating uh, life appropriate to the solar system, not just to the surface of the Earth in these very, very limited temperature and pressure regimes and liquid and so I said, I'm going to show you another version of this that, that, that is kind of aimed at the Dyson tree concept. And then told them about my 10 years of work with NASA on simulating missions and recent work on asteroid and how I felt that actually lassoing and bringing asteroids into Earth orbit uh, is kind of could be a Dyson's disk. If you wanted to look for civilizations, they would maybe have Earth like planets with great disks of material that they were mining and reducing their own biota to live on uh, because they realize they need biota as a stepping stone. And he seemed to be all quite interested in that. And I was very, very honored that he watched the Asteroid Eaters variant. And that that will be public pretty soon. Uh, Ryan is working on the final versions. So in the end, he wanted to meet, that was the second meeting showing visuals. And I showed some of Peter's early simulation work. And a little bit more about Peter's work, what we decided to do is go sequentially through existing open source chemical-slash-molecular-slash-particle dynamic simulator packages that already have years and years of work in them, and see if we can take one as the basis and modify it to do an evo prototype. And so Peter went through Espresso from the Max Planck Institute, Another one, and now he's looking at uh, Chromax, which is he seems to be quite impressed by. So what we're doing is actually installing these platforms and we're pumping them in with particles and properties and, and relationships and then running them and then looking at rendered outputs of, of small areas. And it saves a lot of work than having to start from the first line of code, as you could imagine, Tom. To, to start with these platforms. And the platforms are already built by people who want to be able to simulate chemistry. So anyway, that's um, then we had lunch with Freeman and talked about pigs.
0: So moving into what Peter Newman is doing currently, I mean, I've been uh, following this as well, and certainly the, the films that are coming out seem to give an almost kind of big bang-like start with regards to then, you know, the, the uh, particle interactions um, you know, become intricate and, and these kind of things are observable certainly in the graphics that are produced. But in terms of the ideas of the observer function and how this will work, I mean, is the plan, I um, certainly the the most recent one that you referenced, the name has just escaped me, I think it has an X at the end of it, it deals with relatively small uh kind of cubes of particles. Is the plan to uh, put each one of these cubes on a, a different processor or possibly through the BOINC network and see what comes out of these various cubes and will those cubes, each of them, have their own observer function to kind of tick off when it gets to the point of, you know, necessary interestingness in order to do massive simulation at that particular area? I mean, is this, is this the way you're seeing the EVO grid currently, Bruce?
1: You know, it's it's still a huge open question in the air, and I've been I'm, I'm for the next several months I'm going to be on a quest seeking advice. Uh, we met with Paul Pangaro in New York City, who knows about some of the pitfalls in AI. He's, he's a tremendous, uh, knowledgeable person, and I'm actually asking everyone who will listen about what they would do because I think yes, you could visualize it and th- the proposal that I've, I've sent you today that is the next two-page crisp summary of this thing shows Peter's concept of, of a tree, um, a tree of, of simulations uh, where you're following, you're, you're, you're looking at emergent complexity and how on earth do you define what is interesting emergent self-organized complexity in the simulation. I mean, that's another huge area on its own. And um, and then you're deciding to start more simulation nodes and, and variants. You could vary the physics slightly. Now, here's, here's the, other, the other chart that was sent in the document for you, the alpha, beta, and gamma chart. What I realized, and this is coming back to something you said earlier, Tom, do you try to be very faithful to chemistry and run the simulation and see if something happens? Or do you decide you're going to do abstract universes, just like A-Life normally has been, but with a lot more parameters, a lot more rich physics and a lot more parameters, and vary the physics? So in the, in the, in the, in the chemistry simulation, you're not allowed to vary the laws of physics in the simulation. You're only allowed to vary things like heat and inputs and energy sources and sinks and whatever, uh, and how many particles are there and what kinds of particles but you may wait a long time to see the complexity. If you were able to create artificial universes with wildly differing properties, you might be able to hunt down emergent ratcheting complexity faster. And so I have this conflict in my head of, you know, you have to choose one or the other, and then it occurred to me, just do both. Just just make both as the goal, because you can run one saying, We're trying to be a light in the darkness for the chemists. You run the other one saying, we're wild-haired complexity theorists that are trying to find complexity, uh, increasing complexity at all costs, and we're willing to invent weird universes to do it, and that's a very institute type of way of approaching things. There would be a third variant, which I call gamma, which allows users to muck around, and it would be the interactive version where you know, here's your chemical simulation. Why don't you try throwing in, you know, take your virtual beaker and pour in these surfactants or throw in a complete protocell and see if it breaks up or not. Uh, Or in the wild universe version of gamma, you have, let's try this universe and let's throw in this large Borg-like structure and see if, you know, it gets broken down into bits that then get self-organized. You know, throw in the sugar cube. And so all of all of this it's become a grid of possible evil grids, a grid of evil grids.
0: And the first two aren't mutually exclusive. I mean, certainly the, the point that I wanted to make through our correspondence is that you can have a real-world simulation that is just a series of fixed variables, and then you can do the possible world simulation based on the real-world simulation, but with, as you said, variables that are effects now being relatively fluid in kind of, you know, how many dimensions you want to do it. What interested me with regards to the idea of the user tinkering version of the EvoGrid, because, I mean, this is a theme that's gone back really to the origins of the EvoGrid, was something that you said, I think, to the most recent fellow that you, you spoke to, was the idea that uh, this could be something that was almost a museum piece, that people could enter a, you know, a computer museum or a biology museum or something like that and, and tinker away in their um, virtual petri dish and then throw it back into the Evo And certainly my own kind of sense of regards to these kind of projects is that you give that to the internet. As well, and then you get the really obsessive people that will spend hours, days, months, you know, years tinkering away and doing that kind of interaction and certainly you'll find something interesting from that as well. But in, in your travels and certainly through our correspondence there have been two, what I feel are almost competing themes and I've described this back to you as the idea on one sense of building the Evo grid. Which is what you talk about doing in some regard and certainly what Peter Newman is kind of tinkering with currently. And also the idea of summoning the Evo Grid, which is a theme that has also been going through in terms of your meeting people, in terms of your sowing the seed of this idea of the Evo Grid with the view that what will come out of it will also be a community that will understand and develop the Evo Grid. And certainly my own feeling with regards to building the Evo Grid is that the challenges both Financially, logistically, and also with regards to your personal time will probably be astronomical in terms of you taking a, not necessarily a managerial role, but certainly an overarching role in terms of the kind of mad scientist that actually builds the Evo Grid. Whereas what you've been doing so far has really been fundamentally sowing the seeds in a sufficient number of minds that you are almost summoning the Evo Grid out of this kind of collective intelligence. Do you want to talk about these two notions and and the way that you see them being resolved?
1: Yes, and I I want to thank you, Tom, for so eloquently and brilliantly uh, stating this because when you wrote "Summoning the EvoGrid," it really started to clarify my thinking about my role. Because in truth, uh, I don't. If you look at if you look at the young graduate students coming to the institute or other institutes, you know they already they're specialists, but they're incredibly informed they have had incredible uh, mentoring and they've had they've written papers and they they have incredible deep knowledge in certain specialties knowledge that I will never have Um, I'm very much a generalist I believe that I I came to the right spot at the right time and put together the idea in a unique way and I'm approaching some of the right people to further develop the idea, yourself included, and if I'm summoning it, which I think I, I really did in the in the mid 90s, summoning the avatar by creating the Contact Consortium, creating the conferences, writing the book, and doing a thousand demos, a thousand public talks on avatars. I helped to summon the avatar in the virtual world, the social virtual world, into existence. Um, Sometimes the summoner doesn't really get credit, but occasionally someone comes up and said, You know, you did a talk in 1997, and I established my whole career based on what you showed, this early virtual world. And that's pretty satisfying.
0: The fellow who tracked you down at Burning Man as well, I think, I don't remember whether you attended the most recent Burning Man or whether it was one before, but I remember seeing a photo of a fellow proudly clutching a copy of your 1997 uh, Peach Pit Avatars book, and I could tell that he was a devoted fan that knew that you were going to Burning Man and had to track you down at that one event. So I think there are people out there, certainly, that do, do appreciate your work with regards to Avatars, Bruce.
1: Thank you. And uh, in fact, there's just a documentary film crew here. Um, I was talking to them about the history and the future of the medium. But So last night I was sort of pacing the floors here at the farm saying, what is my role? What is my role? And I'm really coming down more to it being the summoner or the Johnny Appleseed, but who also had, has has an approach and has come up with what may be a key innovation, uh, the a conceiver, co-conceiver of an idea, but really in a leadership role, conceiving some of the fundamental bits. And then as others come up with challenges or questions or, or other fundamental bits. I'm synthesizing that in. So it really is a collective work. And what I've told people, I said, look, when a paper is published uh, based on on this work, it will have 300 names on it. It will be just like one of those cyclotron uh, papers. Because it has, it has to acknowledge at least a couple of hundred people that will have contributed intellectually. So it does, and you're absolutely right. This is an industrial scale enterprise. It's like the Human Genome Project or SETI at Home. And it's industrial scale, and it will need an industrial scale budget. And at some point, it will have to be justifiable to an investors, perhaps initially to private philanthropy. Uh, and then the outcomes of, of what is really fundamental science, it's fundamental technology and science, and it's fundamental biology. And fun, fundamental mathematics that, that will produce a whole generation of, of really valuable tools that you could use to fight cancer. And uh, one of the people advising the project is a cancer researcher, and she says, if you can do what you're saying with all of these particles and this, these interactions, you could you could fabricate the model of a cell with millions, the millions or hundreds of millions of parts and we could fabricate even a small portion of a cell, get it close to some kind of fidelity with a real cell, and we could actually start studying cancer from the inside out. So that is something that you could definitely sell uh, to the biomedical community. So in, in a short answer to long, uh, a sh- long answer to a short question, you're, you, you, Tom, are definitely helping me to, to decide what my role is, and it may be the summoning.
0: So the final hard question for the evening, and i did I did run this one past you earlier, so it isn't completely out of the blue. I followed obviously the the history of the Evo grid progressively, I mean obviously from doing the early uh, biota interviews with you leading up to biota live and then the early biota lives relating to the evo grid, and certainly I think um, and you know Dick Gordon and I regularly uh, compete with regards to this title, but in terms of listening to and viewing all the possible EvoGrid-related stuff. I've, I'm trying to keep up as much as possible. One of the interesting narratives that I've been following through, and obviously it's a mildly selfish narrative, is with regards to the role of Biota in the EvoGrid. And certainly when you start introducing folks like Freeman Dyson and also people like Pete Hutton, obviously, uh, Steen and, in fact, everyone at FLIMP, These are people who fundamentally can also contribute to the biota community as well as the EvoGrid discussion, and perhaps I've been negligent with regards to replenishing your biota CD stock, so you weren't able to hand out biota CDs as as freely as you had previously in the EvoGrid development. But my interest is how do you see firstly the broader biota community but also biota as a movement interacting with the EvoGrid development? Do you see the EvoGrid development really being the new narrative associated with biota or do you see them being two distinctly different things and how do you see it all fitting together in the future
1: well i think a lot of this is going to as i gear up and and many of the listeners may not know that i'm attempting in the middle of all of this to to obtain my phd degree in three to four years um, from this work, from some kind of outcome, because I started it in the 80s, and there wasn't computing power, no one understood what I was talking about, and I've really, sort of as a life thing, I'm trying to actually get that final degree, the, the terminal degree, which is a great name for it. Um, before I'm in too far into my 50s, I'll be 47, I'm 47 now. Um, not the oldest PhD uh, student in the world at this point, uh, so that's all part of this, and I, that's what will keep me writing to deadline, whatever it is I write. But also, this upcoming A Life 12 track uh, is going to draw quite a bit of interest, and I think it could be that, that Biota and Biota Live and the Biota Podcast could become a really good home for the characters, the personalities, the extent issues. Um, and the points of view that lead up to that a Life 12 uh, track, uh, which would be then also recorded to be rebroadcast on, on BIOTA, and that that might be a, a great mission, because in a sense one could also say that the track is co-sponsored by BIOTA, thereby getting us edging us back toward our past as, as a conference uh, hosting organization but we would actually be hosting a conference, a mini-conference within ALIFE, which is a wonderful merger of, of two parallel tracks, one well-known, the ALIFE conference, and one less-known, the Digital Biota Conferences.
0: Certainly, certainly. But in terms of folks such as I mean, Adam Arimenko, obviously people like Justin Lyon have contributed, Gerald, Myself, uh, Dave Kerr, I mean there have been a wide variety of contributors to the early EvoGrid discussion with the view that this was going to be uh, a biota project fundamentally, that the the biota community would come together and contribute into this thing that was the EvoGrid. Now this became uh, the EvoGrid broad in some regard, which really is the responsibility of the community to continue with but in terms of the new EvoGrid, in terms of Bruce Damer, as he will talk in front of the contact conference and also um, Bots and various other things in the next couple of months, how is the Biota community part of the current EvoGrid development? And do you see them merging? Do you see Biota becoming the EvoGrid development? Do you see them running in parallel as just an instrument of discourse into the EvoGrid? How do you see the two things holding together?
1: The main, the main way I see it holding together is that the people like Adam and Gerald, yourself, who have built uh, AI systems and observed them over, in, the, in your case, you know, well over a decade, uh, I think you have a fundamental understanding uh, that ordinary mortals don't have about the challenges of emergent complexity and the ratcheting up thereof. Um, you have a fundamental, because you've been watching things, and in the sense the subconscious has been absorbing things and you've been experimenting for a long time. So I would say that every single person who's been on this podcast and has contributed to the
0: evolution of this idea is a co-collaborator. We have another caller on the line. I believe it's Dick Gordon. Hello. It is Dick Gordon. Hello. Hello. Dick, do you have any questions for Bruce or do you have any, any comments that you'd like to put in the podcast well, with regards to the EVO grid?
2: Yeah, I got, uh, I've been thinking through this ratcheting problem and uh, while you guys were talking. And it seems to me that the, one can make a correlation. Uh, the, the correlation would go the following way. What ratcheting is, is effectively a system changing levels of physics. And uh, I gave that analogy in an email I sent you guys about the interactions of molecules can lead to surface tension, but surface tension in some sense doesn't exist. It's an abstraction that we make. Nevertheless, it's commonly accepted in physics uh, that you can use surface tension as a physical concept in many situations without having to go down to the molecular level to simulate it. So the idea I'd like to put forth is that ratcheting is equivalent to a system using different levels of physics, and the way to handle that in general nowadays is what's called a multiscale physical simulation. Okay, So we have a three-way correlation, ratcheting, levels of physics, and multiscale physical simulations. Now, in a sense... Modern physics can't handle these higher-level physics, con- physics concepts like surface tension in the sense that there's sort of an independence of the physics at the two levels, and you have to do extremely complicated simulations in order to find correlations between the levels. Okay? So in a strange way, physics itself is in the same problem, has the same problem of dealing with these different levels that we deal with in living organisms, okay? So what I'd like to suggest is that, okay, let's accept this situation uh, in terms of the philosophy of physics and just say, okay, what's the observer function that Bruce is postulating? What the observer function needs to do is recognize when different levels of physics need to be invoked, and that's its primary function, and then switch to a different level simulation. Okay? So that's that's what I, I think there's a... In other words, there's a way of rationalizing this without invoking uh, an intelligent design approach where the observer is something standing off to the side guiding the evolution. All it's doing is switching levels of physics.
0: Mm-hmm. And how would you... How would you um, advise Bruce to approach this, Dick, with the view that, the, that Bruce is currently okay. looking at uh, well, you know, particle simulations?
2: Yeah, well, let's take something terribly simple, and that is uh, we're in a zero-gravity situation. Uh, suppose you were doing a simulation of molecules that had the possibility of forming droplets of liquid. So what your observer function would do is look around for droplets. Now, once it found them, it could then group the molecules that it finds are are roughly in the form of droplets and now invoke a higher-level physics simulation for the whole group where it's replaced by a uh, sphere that is simulated with surface tension. And then, for example, if two of them coalesce, we have formulas for the coalescence of two spheres of a fluid of known viscosity that don't require simulating the motion of the individual molecules.
0: Okay. But aren't you telling, through the observer function, aren't you kind of leading the pathway towards what you're trying to look for?
2: Yes. In some so regard? Yes, you are in a sense. And in the sense that we haven't solved this problem in physics in general, what I'm saying is instead of trying to solve everything at once, accept this problem of physics not able to handle these multiple levels in a uh, philosophically nice way. Just accept that and say, okay, we'll write an observer function whose only function is to recognize when a different level of physics should be applied to, uh, to basically speed the simulation. Now, the problem, of course, is that, you know, as the levels increase then we have to understand the physics at the different levels. Okay? But, you know, I think that's... that's uh, let's get a couple of steps of this done and then worry about the more esoteric ones.
0: Uh, I've been but reading in terms this. of the multi-universe problem, Dick, where you, may, where you may actually have certain universes which get to droplets faster... Do you then say that those universes are the better universes for what you're going no, to be simulating?
2: No, no, no. I, I'm saying just let's stick with our universe and just use the physical parameters for our universe. I mean, you know, there, there's no reason to assume other than non-life went to life within our universe with its physics as we understand it. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the basic assumption. Uh, Bruce put it beautifully in his uh, article in the Creationist book. Uh, that there's an assumption which a life makes, and that is that the and it's a basic assumption, and that is that it is correct that uh, uh, that you can get uh, life from non-life. And as long as we make that assumption and put in realistic physics of the universe we're in, uh, I don't think we can go wrong. We could go wrong in that it, be, it might not be adequate, but I don't think we can go wrong in that basic assumption that most people make.
0: But in previous bio lives, you've actually made claims with regards to our understanding of the physics and the adequacy of our understanding of the physics associated with this problem.
2: Well, yes, at some point. I mean, when we hit the level of consciousness, I don't think we know what in the hell to do. I would agree. What physics, what is the physics of consciousness? But we're, Bruce is starting way below the cellular level, so let's not worry about that yet.
0: No, no, I mean, I'm even talking at the cellular level, or perhaps I misunderstood the way that you, you know, framed the problem previously. I mean, my understanding from talking to you previously is even at the cellular level, as you take it from, you know, basic atomic physics, there are still so many gaps in our knowledge with regards to actually assembling things to the cellular level. Yes, this
2: is correct, but so what? We, if we only invoke real physics and see what, what emerges that matches some real physics, we're okay. I mean, you know, at the, at the level Bruce is dealing with, for example, uh, one might switch from molecular dynamics to uh, Navier-Stokes equations for fluid flow. Okay? That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Now those are well accepted, and you know there's a huge literature on these higher this higher level physics, even though the transition between them is not always
0: smooth. So it's a faster method just to take your collection of observer functions and work out how to actually find a a kind of you know fastest possible movement through the selection of observer functions that you present. I mean, obviously that's the right. challenge. To... There's
2: a, in other words, uh, there's a tree of physics, so to speak. Okay, uh, we can think of it, for example, the one level is the relationship between atoms and molecules, as an example. Another level might between the re- be the relationship between molecules and a fluid. Uh, you know, we have to think through carefully. Once you've got a fluid, you can talk about, you know, when do you have sharp enough boundaries so that a surface tension should be invoked. Okay, this is the kind of thing which I'm saying. So as a simulation runs, the observer function is looking around for clusters of lower-level stuff that can be lumped together into higher-order physics. But that's all it does. It's it's just saying we can approximate what's going on at the molecular level by this higher-level physics, and we're going to switch to that higher-level physics now. It will speed the simulation, simplify it, and give us things to handle in terms of understanding what's going on at these higher levels. We don't have to look at it all as a chaos of molecules in which we're trying to see a pattern. So and it have... The observer function, I think the observer function is the wrong word because it ties in with a mental function. It's really, it's a, a, I think since Bruce just coined that a couple of days ago, I think the thing is to get rid of it and change it to something less subjective. It's a function which recognizes the appropriate level of physics to be using.
1: I mean, it could be an, a- and I completely agree. And in fact, even as long as a couple of years ago, as I was sketching out nerves and trying to figure out things, it just occurred to me: oh, as soon as a, as soon as a vesicle forms, you, you're at a meta level now. You have a yes, sinus, exactly. So,
2: so why not recognize that?
1: And you recognize that, and you switch to your your, your vesicle.
2: Yeah, and once you have a vesicle, you can have flow through it, okay? So you recognize that flow can occur and the thing can confine a fluid and therefore a pressure can occur. Pressure is an example of a concept which is an abstraction from lower-level stuff, but it's nevertheless a concept that has a very rich physics going back to uh, at least the uh, thermodynamics of the early 1800s, Okay. So, you know, there's all sorts of, the whole development of thermodynamics is a higher level physics.
1: The ratcheting up is ratcheting to different physics models. That's
2: right. Fundamentally, that's what's going on, and that's what allows you to ratchet, starting with this origin of life at a molecular level. The ratcheting is ratcheting to different levels of physics. And I think if you... and,
1: And this was brought up, uh, the gentleman I forgot to mention, uh, Arnie Levine, uh, who, if you look him up, he's a, an eminent figure in, in, in genetics, and he's he's the man who brought uh, biology to the Institute for Advanced Study. Uh, Freeman wanted it for 50 years, and Arnie brought it in, and of course, Freeman says, and, I, and I've already retired, you know, and this has finally happened,
2: <laughs> but,
1: okay. but here's the thing. Uh, Arnie, the night before, we were at the Marcon house, and we met. Arnie was there, and we met him, and and he, he was an extremely uh, erudite man. He, he spoke with us for three hours. He gave me the advice on, on talking with Freeman, but mm-hmm. he also came up with exactly what you're saying, which is the physics changes at each level. Yes, that's the fundamental thing. The,
2: yes. And, okay.
1: And so it it's stuck in my head, and I mentioned that also to 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 Freeman that Arnie had. Said this and of course you you have said this a long time before um, but one of the things that Jean Pierre at the Flint group pointed out he was saying yes of course there's higher order structures emerge and then you have to you have a different whole different universe but the lower order stuff is still going on
2: but you don't and, have a different universe you see the physicists accept that these models are all valid the higher level models are approximations to the lower level but they still deal with it as physics. they don't call that metaphysics
1: right, but the, the thing is what John Pierre was pointing out is he said you you have to understand it that there's a feedback going on between the emergent structure and and the the ratcheted pre ratcheted stuff is still going on It's still going on in there, and even the the, the, the most fundamental atomic elements are still going on there so you have to actually kind of run all the simulators at once
2: well yes and yes and no you see once you've got suppose we have surface tension of a droplet now having identified the particles that are in that droplet we now switch to moving them in a different way okay because we switch to let's say let's say we've got a drop that's vibrating or so it's changing shape okay you can now there once you recognize you've got a drop, and that's the function of what you've been calling observer function, then uh, uh, then what you do is you let its dynamics drive the lower level. In other words, if the droplet changes shape because of the surface tension effects, let's say you've got gravity, so it flattens or something like that, mm-hmm. then you move the particles within to correspond to that shape, right. rather than doing both simulations simultaneously.
1: Right, one is now driving the other.
2: The higher level now drives the lower level. Exactly.
0: Well, I'm sorry to cut you both off, but unfortunately we've run out of time, and as Gerald and I were burnt previously with regards to um, Blog Talk Radio cutting the audio, I think it's probably best that we conclude the discussion currently, and I'd like to thank you both, obviously Bruce, for coming and giving an update, and, and Dick for instigating more conversation into the future. The next bio to Live is open. It, uh, it may be sometime in the near future. It may be slightly longer. It may be conference audio. Uh, but I'd like to thank folks for listening in and thank Brooks and Dick for participating.